You're listening to Episode 6 of Justice, Mercy, Faith, a podcast from The Christian Citizen. In this episode, enjoy Christian Citizen contributors, the Reverend Daniel Hedrick, with his essay, The Meaning of the Bladensburg Cross, as read by Christian Citizen editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas. The Reverend John Zering encourages probing questions in Lent, and the Reverend Mindy Welton Mitchell shares a communion legacy. The Reverend Daniel Hedrig is Associate Pastor of Northside Drive Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Prior to joining Northside Drive, he practiced civil litigation with a law firm in Knoxville, Tennessee. He is a former fellow of both the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty and the Fellowships at Auschwitz for the Study of Professional Ethics. His essay, The Meaning of the Bladensburg Cross, is read here by Christian Citizen Editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas. A towering 40-foot concrete cross in Bladensburg, Maryland, is at the center of a fascinating Establishment Clause case pending before the United States Supreme Court. Originally erected as a memorial to deceased veterans of the First World War, it was eventually acquired by the state of Maryland and now is subject of American Humanist Association First American Legion. There are a host of interesting legal and constitutional issues wrapped up in this case. Will the court continue to use the lemon test or further erode its Establishment Clause jurisprudence? Will the court's newest conservative justices establish where they stand on the pivotal First Amendment issue? But at the beating heart of the case is an interpretive question. What is the meaning of the cross? The government and other interested parties have argued in their court filings that the original intent of those who financed the memorial, along with its unique history, should determine the meaning. And that meaning is decisively secular and recognizably American, to wit, that the cross is nothing more than a memorial to honor the sacrifice of war veterans. After all, the argument goes, the veterans' mothers simply wanted to mirror the tombstone cross which marked the gravesite of their loved ones' remains in Europe. This is all true, but a bit disingenuous. To claim that the cross is merely a secular grave marker ignores history, culture, theology, tradition, and common sense. To understand the government's argument in this case, it helps to have in view American civil religion with all its distinctive totems and catchphrases. Think Jerry Bruckheimer, long windswept views of Arlington Cemetery, and the sound of a lone bugle playing, and you'll have the meaning of the cross as advanced by advocates of American civil religion. There is another perhaps less known meaning to the cross, at least in America. I say this tongue-in-cheek, but only half so and that is the meaning argued by appellates and various friends of the court who have filed supporting briefs with the Supreme Court. One such organization is the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, which filed a superbly argued amicus brief with several interfaith and ecumenical organizations. The BJC argues that the meaning of the cross is decisively religious, not secular. Quote, the cross symbolizes the central Christian story of Christ's death and resurrection, and for Christians, it symbolizes God's gift of Jesus, who died on a cross and rose from the dead, offering the promise of eternal life, end quote. This is true and a powerful reason why Maryland's continued display of the cross violates the Establishment Clause. And yet the meaning of the cross is both more complex and richer than the space for conventional parameters of argumentation in legal briefs allow. To reduce the cross to a symbol memorializing war sacrifice is a quintessentially American act. 
but such a meaning is profoundly at odds with the theological significance of the cross. As Stanley Harawas has argued in War and the American Difference, quote, the sacrifices of war are undeniable, but in the cross of Christ, the Father has forever ended our attempts to sacrifice to God in terms set by the city of man, end quote. But a whole edifice has been built on allowing the city of man to dictate the terms of our theological imagination. American governmental displays of the cross necessarily seek to advance the interests of the nation-state. The nation-state seeks to valorize war as the ultimate sacrifice, but all sacrifices in this system are made to a God other than the God who became incarnate in Jesus Christ. The God who became flesh in Jesus submitted to death on a Roman symbol of humiliation and punishment, not charging a machine gun nest for a nation, but laying down his life so that all might have life. The cross as a symbol of torture, scandal, the emptying of God's power, and of the redemptive life is at the center of the Christian understanding of the cross. The government argues that the military virtues emblazoned at the base of the memorial cross signify its predominantly secular purpose, valor, endurance, courage, and devotion. This is perhaps the argument sine qua non of American civil religion, namely that military virtues are necessarily the best and highest expression of religious meaning and purpose in American life. Jesus died a criminal's death in ignominy and humiliation. The cross prior to Christianity was the symbol of torture and death for the lowest enemies of the Roman Empire. That the God of the universe submitted to die on such an instrument of torture is a far deeper truth than any forwarded by the state of Maryland. Jews and other non-Christians who regularly see the Bladensburg Cross as they drive know that it is intended to signal the cultural hegemony of Christianity in the pantheon of American civil religion. Any reasonable person would know that the cross is decisively a Christian symbol, which belies the government's claim that there is no favoring of one religion over another. From a constitutional perspective, I believe the meaning of the Bladensburg Cross as a distinctively Christian symbol constitutes an Establishment Clause violation. But from a Christian perspective, there is something deeper afoot, namely that Christians risk conflating discipleship with nationalism when they buy into the nation's appropriation of the cross as a symbol of military virtue and sacrifice. If the cross is to mean something more than war is the ultimate sacrifice in honor of the nation, which of course it does. Christians would do well to rethink their relationship to both war and the nation's usage of Christian symbols. It should be an odd sight for those traversing the intersection where the cross stands to see a Roman symbol of capital punishment, death, and torture. That is not seen by many of us as signifying much other than the sacrifice of war suggests how hard it is to see the cross through American eyes. Whether the Supreme Court decides for or against this or that meaning of the cross may be finally immaterial. America long ago decided what the cross means. The infinitely richer, more complex, and life-giving meaning of the cross, which stands at the center of the universe, entering history and illuminating eternity. What would American civil religion know to do with that? The Reverend John Ziering served in higher education leadership and then became pastor of United Church of Christ Congregations in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Maine. He is the author of more than 40 books. His most recent, from Judson Press, is Get Your Church Ready to Grow, a guide to building attendance and participation, and is available at judsonpress.com. He is a regular contributor to The Christian Citizen, 
and joins us this week reading his latest essay, Probing Questions in Lent. On Easter Sunday, church attendance surges to overflowing. Longtime members whisper to one another how wonderful it would be if every Sunday could be like Easter. Additional services must be added in some congregations to hold all those who come to worship, to praise, and to glorify God. The Easter message, He is not here, He is risen. It can be an emotional Sunday. If the church were to ask and to listen to its people, it might hear that a number of its most devout members have some confusion, questions, or doubt about Easter. When do those members raise their questions and connect with others in conversation about the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth? Certainly not on Easter Sunday. And so one of the best times to consider the questions of the curious is during Lent, when thinking people of faith can wonder and converse about the meaning of Easter. One of the most challenging questions pondered by thinking Christians is, was it a physical resurrection from the dead? A longtime church member told how she has a hard time with Easter because she does not really believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. The Easter message proclaims, he is not here, he is risen. There may be devout and faithful people in your congregation who love God and follow Jesus, but may question if it was a physical resurrection. Is this question a threat? Do you think it might weaken your faith to even consider this question? Do you think God would be upset if people question traditional or orthodox beliefs? What you think about Jesus is called your Christology. Do you think of Jesus as God, or as man, or as both? Was he more one than the other? Imagine it on a scale of one to ten. At the highest end, the ten, this view of Christology holds that Jesus, the Christ, is 100% God. This is the highest Christology, which believes that Jesus was not man, but was God in man's body. The Father and I are one, Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30. Both are equally God. Later, Jesus told the disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's John 14, 9. A 10 on this scale holds that Jesus is purely divine and not human. Jesus is God. On the other end, the one on the scale, this view of Christology holds that Jesus is 100% man. This view believes that he was the son of God or a son of God because he told the truth about God. Jesus got it right better than anyone. He had an inspired view of who God is and what God is like. This view recognizes that in his teachings, Jesus of Nazareth did not point to himself, but he pointed to God. He did not say, pray like this, our Jesus who art in heaven. He did not propose that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and might. He did not encourage his followers to seek ye first the kingdom of Jesus. He did not come to preach the good news of the kingdom of Jesus. It's not about me, Jesus would have said. It's about God. That is what is really important, is it not? So the low end of the Christology scale perceives a Christ who was the Son of God, anointed by God, sent, inspired, pointing always to God.
a man teaching a way of life of love and forgiveness, the godlike way to live, the very best way for humans to live. Jesus is human. In between, around the five on the scale, this view of Christology sees Jesus as possessing a dual nature, being both human and divine. Here, Jesus is the Word become flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, says John 1, verse 14. Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, and Jesus is man, who suffered like us. He understands what we go through, for he himself went through it. The reason there are two candles on many altars is to symbolize the two natures of Jesus, human and divine, man and God, both. It is possible that in many congregations there exist people on every mark of that one to ten scale. The best gathering of God's people is inclusive, embracing every person with all of their beliefs, doubts, warts, and all. In God-like congregations, you can be a two, four, six, eight, or ten and still be a member of the Christian church. There is room for all. It is possible that you may wake up on different days and find yourself at a different place on the scale. You may be all over the place. Some days you wake up and you are a ten, believing that Jesus is God and that he and the Father are one. Other days you wake up and perhaps you are a one, believing that what Jesus taught about God is what is important. Most days perhaps you fall in the four to six range. So which is correct? No one can tell you which number is exactly right, but anyone who insists that you must believe a certain way and be a specific number is wrong. No one can tell you where you must fall on the scale. You are just as welcome to your understanding of the nature of Christ and his resurrection, and wherever you fall on the scale, you can sing those Easter hymns however you want and still be welcome, included, and valued. That kind of extravagant welcome seems downright godlike. Trying our best to be godlike is one million times more important than where a person falls on the belief-o-meter scale. (laughs) God accepts and loves you as you are. Go and do likewise. Accept others the same way wherever they fall on the scale. Our lives are rooted in belief, as Jesus taught. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet come to believe. That's John chapter 20, verse 29. We are all still a work in progress, coming to believe. And yet, never be afraid of the quest for truth. God has nothing to fear from your search for truth or from your curiosity. And Jesus, called Rabboni, our teacher by those who knew him best, could not be imagined to be insulted by a student who raises hard questions or he was, who is curious. That is not the nature of a master teacher. The Reverend Mindy Welton Mitchell is pastor of Queen Anne Baptist Church in Seattle, Washington, and ministry associate of social media for the Evergreen Association of American Baptist Churches USA. She is a regular contributor to The Christian Citizen and the Justice, Mercy, Faith podcast. This week, she shares the story of a communion legacy. In preparation for Lent, I cleaned my office, and under the pile of papers I'd been meaning to file since Advent began, I found the four travel communion sets resting on the counter below the Bibles on my shelf. 
Three sets were passed down to me from my family, having belonged to my grandfather and great-grandfather. One has a silver cruet. Two have silver-plated host boxes. All three have individual communion cups in solid boxes lined with cloth. One contains purple velvet. One has a typewritten liturgy pasted inside the lid, a signature mark of my grandfather as a pastor. Over the years of receiving his prayer books, Bibles, and sermons, three and a half by five inch index cards with typed notes have become my link to who my grandfather was as a pastor and our family's heritage, five generations of Baptist ministers. My mother, my grandfather's daughter, became a pastor after me. For three generations before me, my great-great-grandfather, great-grandfather, and then grandfather, along with his twin brother and younger brother, the men of my mother's side of the family were ministers. I knew I wanted to go into ministry, but I never really had the opportunity to talk with my grandfather about it before he died when I was 17. While I was in seminary, my step-grandmother began to pass down books and sermons belonging to my grandfather. Upon graduating from seminary, I received the three portable communion sets, and at my ordination, my great-uncle Bill, my grandfather's youngest brother, gave me my great-grandfather's Schofield Bible, complete with his own notes in the margins, newspaper clippings for sermon ideas, and an old black-and-white photograph of the ministers of my family. All of these are pieces of my family history that help tell the story of where I come from. The three communion sets hold the most meaning for me because I don't know the stories behind them. I assume they were given to my grandfather and his father upon their ordination or installation services at churches. I don't know who they visited and offered communion to, whether homebound or ill, whether they shared communion with families of newborn babies or other special occasions. All I know is they cared for their congregations deeply. While the copies of sermons and books tell me what they believed and preached, while the Bibles and notes tell me what they thought about, the communion sets remind me that first and foremost, they were pastors. There's a fourth communion set now, one that I received as a gift from my husband when I was installed as pastor of a church over 10 years ago. It's different in that it comes in a soft, small blue tote. It's ceramic. And instead of individual communion cups, it comes with a chalice and paten and communion linens. I suppose it's fitting that mine stands out so differently from the other three. And yet I keep them all together on the counter in my office until it's time for me to go do my pastoral visitations. I know the stories of my communion set, the people I shared communion with days before they went home to God, the family I said goodbye to before I moved that was unable to be at worship my last Sunday, the homebound members that I visited. I know the prayers that were shared, the hymns sung together. I know my own rituals, how when I return from a pastoral visit, I carefully wash out the chalice and cruet, clean the crumbs out of the host box, and fold the linens back properly inside its tote. Once in a while, I will open the old communion sets, clean and polish them. Every now and then, I will take one of my grandfather's communion sets instead, a reminder of the pastors who helped shape me. Even though I can't speak to them anymore, they still speak to me as my own pastoral story continues. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thank you to this week's contributors, the Reverend Daniel Hedrick, the Reverend John Zering, and the Reverend Mindy Welton Mitchell. Our theme music is Believable Too by Peter Sandberg. 
The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. We'll be back with a new episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith in a couple of weeks. To learn more about The Christian Citizen, visit the website christiancitizen.us. Until next time, I'm Joshua Kagey. Thanks for listening.